I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your uh, host of the show. I'm just doing host this week. I'm, <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not going to make up something silly. All right, great. Uh, in that case, I'm Dean Detloff and I'm your Andy Richter. Okay. <laughs> that's what I've always been, that's what I've been needing this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you can be the Conan for the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, God. It's, so good uh, luck that with is, that big hair. My hair is so big. I'm very tall. I'm Irish. Ah. That's yuck, me. Yuck, that's yuck. me doing like that's my Conan impression. Yeah, the yuck yucks were my <laughs> Andy Richter impression. <laughs> Thank you. I needed someone's got to do it. You know, no one wants to, but someone has to. <laughs> someone has to. Usually it's Andy Richter, but today it's me. Uh, all right, <laughs> we're not talking off. about <laughs> we're not talking about Conan surprise uh, this week. We are talking about the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, one of those acronyms that you just want it to keep on going. The WWW. Uh, you might remember <laughs> that at the end of uh, last year, we did a really big arc about labor. We talked a bunch about contemporary labor, labor struggles, along with some history about people like uh, Father Thomas J. Haggerty, who was a, a Catholic priest responsible for a lot of the formation of the IWW. Um, Haggerty, you might remember, is one of those characters that we were really interested in. So this week, we're taking a deeper look into the history of the IWW. Uh, we'll return briefly to Haggerty, and also we'll talk about the ways that the IWW appropriated American religion in the early 20th century. Um, to get into these topics, we read a neat book called The Soul of the Wobblies, the IWW Religion and American Culture in the Progressive Era by a guy named Donald E. Winters. It's from 1985. You can find it on archive.org. Uh, the book is a really neat history that tries to read the IWW as a sort of religious movement. We'll talk more about that later. Um, it's an interesting the uh, thesis. We're not really sure what to make of it, <laughs> but what really stands out about the book is the work that it does to explain how the connection between the IWW and the social gospel was really messy. Yeah, in it, we get all these really cool stories about how much Billy Sunday sucked or how Eugene Debs you know, loved Christian socialism. We hear about what exactly is going on with all those very fun IWW labor songs, and uh, we even get some stuff about how... The IWW appropriated the figure of Jesus as a hobo and worker and rebel. That's all really cool. Uh, the book is just just packed full of lots of neat histories. Uh, definitely something you should check out if you like labor history and religious history. 
Um, overall, though, it's like one more story that highlights the the messy overlap between religion and politics and how people on the left have kind of worked this out historically. In some ways, it's a story, you know, that gives us kind of permission to be certain types of Christians, the kind that think of Jesus as a hobo or whatever. Uh, but it's it's overall like uh, it's, it's kind of like Marika Rose's point that we are always bringing up on this podcast. Uh, it's about finding different starting places for Christianity. And um, this is uh, uh, one place you might start Christianity from. I mean, you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse. Uh, the big idea behind this book, I think, uh, that comes out, especially in the introduction here, is to explore the ways that the IWW impacted American culture and how American culture, especially religious cultures, impacted the IWW. Um for better and worse, like that, both of those theses allow uh, Donald Winters to do some extremely interesting stuff. They also, I think, sometimes force him into like some really bizarre, <laughs> like analytical uh, rabbit holes, but clearly get him on the path of some really cool archives and he pulls together a lot of neat stuff. Um, one methodological note. Uh, about how the IWW is not a religion, but it does kind of look like one. That's the the big, I guess, strategy that Winters is is using here. Um, the way that uh, they treat like Jesus and other kinds of figures and appropriate aspects of religious culture makes the thesis interesting, but also kind of confusing. And also the way that Winters uh, brings up religion and tries to explain what religion is, um, again, kind of opens some things up and also makes some bizarre things. So maybe we should just start talking about that a little bit. Um, Matt, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to maybe introduce how, uh, like what Winters means by religion and how IWW gets read as a candidate for a religion. Yeah, it's actually kind of weird. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just not as good of a like religious studies person to exactly get why this is important. But to me, it seems like, I don't know, not very important. Like, um, so the book opens up with like this explanation of um, this kind of actually this this fun story. Uh, well, fun, historically speaking, where these like IWW guys are getting hauled off to jail and like in in um in jail, the police officers are like asking them about their religion, which I think is a weird mm -hmm. thing to ask somebody mm -hmm. you've just imprisoned. <laughs> but like, I don't know, it's like the, you know, it's like 1910 or whatever. So maybe that's a normal question for 1910. But the, uh, the, the IWW guys are like, Oh, uh, my religion, it's the IWW. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, I mean, Winters goes to some extent to be like, well, that's kind of like an interesting thing to say, like what actually is a religion is the IWW a religion. And he brings in some other sort of historians that deal with the IWW and um, these other historians. And we don't need to get into the whole thing about it, but they're like, listen, the IWW isn't a church. But Winter's, Winter's thesis is like, it's not, but it also looks like one if you think about it. Because what mm -hmm. what's a religion other than just a group of people who have common sort of languages and symbols and gatherings together? And... Um, then he brings in this other theologian that you, you listener may or may not know, uh, named Paul Tillich. Uh, Paul Tillich is really famous for framing religion as, you know, whatever your ultimate concern is. Um, this makes religion really amorphous and kind of hard to define, <laughs> but, um, uh, that, that's kind of where Winters goes with it is, is saying like, you know, the IWW, it's not a church as such, but it does have these like sort of religious elements to it. Um, and 
sometimes like you were saying dean this affords him some like interesting things to say and in the byproduct of it are these cool stories like um something that he that that winters pushes on this book a few times is saying that like if religion is your ultimate concern and the iww is something that's kind of like a religion then the ultimate concern of the iww is solidarity so the it's it's a religion about solidarity and isn't that interesting I'm like yeah it's kind of interesting um but I guess it kind of ends up being sort of weird in some places because I don't really know what framing the IWW as a religion does for you as like a labor organizer. <laughs> but uh, that's where he wants to go with some of it, at least. I don't know. What do you think about that whole bit? Yeah, uh, I mean, you're right to pull out all the weird stuff about it. Um, let me first say what I think is cool about it or unique about it. What's cool is uh, Winters brings in all kinds of different sociologists and anthropologists and religious studies people from the 80s. So it's pretty outdated. Like if you're a religious studies person now, you'll probably get kind of upset <laughs> reading some of the people that he cites. Uh, but nevertheless, it's really interesting because the argument that he's making is a sociological one, which is basically how does religion function in a society? And if it functions in, you know, X, Y, and Z kind of ways, then what could the IWW be other than a religion? And in fact, uh, it allows saying that allows him to be attentive to where the IWW identifies itself as a religion. So both in the examples you were just saying, Matt, where people in prison would reply it kind of as a joke, I think, but also somewhat seriously. Um, but also occasionally the IWW will, will use religious language. Um, it uses all kinds of uh, structural things that are clearly borrowed from American Christianity, Protestantism in particular, and also uh, things that get borrowed from other um, traditions like Judaism, etc. Like those kinds of things really do peek through. Um, and I think in that sense, what the thesis allows Winters to do is sort of show the blurry lines between um, what is religion, how does it show up in a society, and also uh, how do these political movements really um, emerge from the societies that they're a part of, right? Like it's really easy to see something like liberation theology in Latin America as being profoundly Catholic because they come out of deeply Catholic societies. Uh, so it's not a surprise then that the IWW um, coming out of a time of kind of religious revival and all kinds of stuff like that would also be sort of playing with that sort of thing too. So that's what I think is good. Um, I think that you're right, Matt, that it talking about religion as an ultimate concern can really create an amorphous definition where everything is a religion and that nothing is really a religion. And that that is a big problem. Um, I wouldn't lean on this book if you were like, trying to figure out what religion is, <laughs> but I would definitely lean on it. I think if you were trying to figure out what are the kind of religious or spiritual contours or, or like the streams that feed into the creation of the IWW. And in that sense, I think it's a really productive idea. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, drawing the, drawing the, the difference between like liberation theology as Catholic and the IWW as, you know, Protestant in some ways is good, but it's also different, too, because, you know, I mean, while some of the folks in the IWW, you know, were, were, were religious because everyone is in some way or another. Right. Or at least some people mm -hmm. are. Um, that's fine. But like the IWW is is interestingly religious because it's always kind of satirical. And I think that part is really hard for me to get my mind around about why it's hard for yeah. me to kind of accept the IWW as religion. Right. Because it's always like. Like, like sometimes it, it takes like the figure of Jesus or the figure of Moses or somebody like that, like the prophets or whatever. And they uses them in a very serious way. And that's cool. And I think that is, you know, interesting. But like when it comes to religion as, you know, a normative expression or something, it's usually using it to like poke fun. Like all of the. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like you, you saw Phillips, you know, when he talks about the 
um, the wobbly songs. He's like, you know, we took the we took Christian hymns because they're pretty and we changed the words so they're more true. And I think that kind of is (laughs) illustrative of the ways that the IWW is exactly not religious in an important way. Right. (laughs) So I I don't know. I I get the thesis. It seems it's interesting. But yeah, I don't I don't know. Maybe uh, not for me. Yeah, yeah. maybe I would say it this way. (laughs) <laughs> maybe i'd say the iww is is clearly not a religion like winters is wrong about that um i think so but saying it's a religion uh like in, maybe intentionally getting it wrong uh allows you to say a lot of other things that are very yeah. interesting and you might kind of overlook yeah i think that's right the byproduct of saying that is really great so that's something yeah exactly <laughs> all right well all the methodological stuff is now squared away we'll probably have to come back to it at some point because it kind of undergirds a lot of the way this book is written but um the the second real chapter or i guess that's the introduction but the first real chapter is about thomas haggerty and eugene debs so um it's a cool chapter because it it helps us think about the i guess the sort of latent christianity that the founders of the iww are bringing to the table and the way that they thought about the connection between politics and religion um and so it's helpful in, in that extent um so the basically the the author Winter here he sets up this kind of interesting dialectic between Haggerty and Debs. So if you don't remember, well, Dean, you wrote about him. Who's Thomas Haggerty? <laughs> yeah, uh, Thomas Haggerty is a very fascinating Catholic priest. Um, he was part of the Socialist Party of America first. Um, he essentially left his parish ministry in order to stump around for Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party. Um, and then he was put on the path to further and further radicalism, um, eventually forcing him to leave the SPA with uh, some other folks to help start the IWW. And even in that process, he was a, a radical among radicals, uh, always kind of pushing the IWW further or trying to anyway, um, even disagreeing with people as radical as Debs, for example. Um, and uh, Haggerty kind of has this really mysterious disappearance in the labor movement. So he's kind of a, a fascinating character, I guess. Um, he sort of like, I don't know, drops off the face of the earth at some point. Um, but a really interesting Catholic priest who tried to bring together labor and religion. Um, it's probably worth noting here, too, that there are a ton of uh, other religious folks kind of running around at the founding of the IWW. Um, oh, I should plug real quick, though. I wrote an article about uh, Thomas Haggerty for Commonweal. So if you're interested in that, you can find out. Anyway, uh, the founding of the IWW includes lots of people, including some very anti-clerical types. but. Uh, you have Thomas Haggerty, a Catholic priest who's there at the founding. You have um, people like uh, James Connolly, who we just talked about last week. He is a founder of the IWW and uh, an Irish Catholic. Um, you have people like uh, Mother Jones, who she started as a, a Catholic activist and had this really interesting relationship to her faith um, throughout her whole life. Uh, you have people like Big Bill Haywood, who had a kind of religious upbringing. Um, Ralph Chaplin, who will go on to convert to Catholicism later on. Uh, Lucy Parsons also had a really interesting relationship to Christianity. So all that to say, uh, lots of the founders of the IWW are like religious or at least acquainted with religion in an intimate kind of way. Um, So it's sort of baked into the beginning. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for that shameless self plug. (laughs) Man, um, (laughs) another quick digression, though. Isn't there a crazy story about Thomas Haggerty? And he's like, he was like going to shoot some folks kind of like a cowboy, cowboy (laughs) uh, priest. 
Yeah, he uh, well, the way the story goes is um, he was a priest in Santa Fe, New Mexico. This is before he joined the Socialist Party. And uh, there were a bunch of railroad workers um, near where he was uh, a, a pastor. And he would translate uh, socialist materials into Spanish for them. And one day there was like a messenger who came from the railroad bosses kind of saying, hey, don't do that or whatever. And uh, Haggerty uh, replied uh, that he could shoot a dime at like 10 paces or something. <laughs> and he said, you should go tell the bosses that. <laughs> so, yeah, big uh, labor cowboy energy. Oh, yeah. I love that. All right. Thomas Haggerty. There he is. Um, so there, there's Thomas Haggerty. There's uh, but uh, counterposed against Haggerty. Uh, Winters puts Eugene Debs, who I think everyone knows as like the probably most prolific sort of like Socialist Party um, presidential candidate ever. Right. He ran uh, for president several times. Um, but he he uh, sorry. So the Winter sets um, Haggerty and Debs against one another, not because like they have different politics necessarily, but they think about Christianity and politics in these two different ways. Um, and I think it's a kind of a helpful distinction to demonstrate the ways that, um, yeah, they're not the same. <laughs> and uh, but you also get to see kind of like who sort of wins out in the end, which I think is interesting, too. Um, but before we get that far, let's just maybe set the stage with a quick uh, a quick quote from the book. So this is kind of a chunk of text, but I think it'll help us kind of get into the the mood of this chapter. Uh, So Winters writes, The founding convention of the Industrial Workers of the World held in late June and early July of 1905 was an important, if frequently unsung, event in American labor and radical history. Although attended by some 200 socialist and revolutionary delegates of various persuasions, that first convention, quote, rang with the dominant notes of a handful of men. That's also women, though is what the story you just told Dean. So that's <laughs> yeah. A problem. Anyways, um, two of the early pioneers, Thomas J. Haggerty and Eugene V. Debs were to play a dramatic role in the launching of the IWW. Even though their direct involvement with the revolutionary union was brief, both of these men, beside being passionately committed to socialism and industrial unionism, arrived at their ideological positions, at least in part through the teachings of Christianity. So that's why they're important. Um, so yeah, like I said, winter uses Haggerty and Debs to kind of draw out the two approaches uh, to, like two different approaches to religion um, with regard to politics. And, and anyways, we'll see how one manifests itself in the IWW more so than the other. Um, so quickly, um, I'll just kind of read this little, this is a quote from Thomas Haggerty that I think paints a particular picture of the way he thinks about the connection between religion and politics. Um, Haggerty says, no one would dream of going into a meat market asking for a Catholic beefsteak, a Methodist mutton chop, <laughs> or a Presbyterian ham. Uh, religion has no more to do with socialism than it has with meat and bread. Socialism is an economic science, not a system of dogmatic beliefs. It is wholly beyond the scope of the church's mission to deal with questions of social economy, just as it is beyond the purpose of the Republican Party to advance a new exegesis of the Davidic Psalm. So that's Haggerty's position, that uh, asking about Christian socialism is just like asking about a Presbyterian ham. I'm not a fan of this this way of thinking, That's right. but um, <laughs> but it's a it's a very funny way to talk about it, and I like that. <laughs> yep. Uh, do you want to give us the the Debs quote too, and then we can talk about them together, maybe? Um, okay. So Debs, on the other hand, has this like sort of different view of Christianity and politics. So this is a quote from Debs. I told my friends at the cloth that I did not believe Christ was meek and lowly, but a real living vital agitator who went into the temple with a lash and a kraut and whipped the oppressors of the poor. 
He routed them out of the doors and spilled their blood and got silver on the floor. He told the robbed and misruled and exploited and driven people to disobey their plunderers. He denounced the profiteers, and it was for this that they nailed his quivering body to the cross and spiked to the gates of Jerusalem. Not because he told them to love one another, that was a harmless doctrine. But when he touched their prophets and denounced them before their people, he was then marked for the crucifixion. Okay. <laughs> Pretty clear difference. Thomas Haggerty? Christianity? Politics? I have no idea what you're talking about. Eugene V. Debs, Jesus was an agitator. <laughs> okay, very different. <laughs> yeah, I'm really intrigued by this difference, actually. I mean, you could do a whole episode on the differences between Debs and Haggerty on both religion and politics. Uh, it's wild, since Haggerty is a Catholic priest and more politically radical, and Debs ends up not really being a believer, but um, more sympathetic in many respects to religion. Yeah, uh, I wonder a little bit if this has to do with their exactly their kind of respective different vocations like if you're a catholic and you're trying to make a case for socialism uh we saw the same exact logic uh last week when we talked about james Connolly, right that um hey the working class doesn't uh need like you don't have to be a specific religion to be part of the struggle of the working class um you know it's sort of incidental to like what you're up to um and I wonder if that has to do with the the kind of tiptoeing you need to do as a Catholic sometimes to kind of say what you want to say without like seeming like you're stepping on the toes of the hierarchy or something. You know, this is all pre-Vatican II stuff. So uh, the church is a, a pretty um, rigid institution. So perhaps there's a strategic thing going on there. Uh, and by on the other hand, Debs obviously has nothing to lose by telling people like, yeah, Jesus was a socialist. You should get on board. Um, but I don't know. It's a, an interesting thesis to keep on thinking about. Yeah, that's like a pretty good way, I think, of maybe parsing out this difference. Um, I also wondered, too, like, I mean, Haggerty is a priest. He knows about Catholic social teaching. And maybe it's just like, you know, he's already seen what what like theologically adept people do with social policy or social ideas. And he doesn't want any part of that, maybe. I, I don't know. But um, just the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a really interesting difference. But just the same. I, I end up siding a lot more with Debs, I think, than Haggerty on this one. Um, I don't know. It seems it seems weird to say like, wow, this guy literally telling rich people to sell all of their things um, has nothing to do with politics. I don't. I doesn't make sense from a right wing perspective to me, and doesn't make sense from a left wing perspective to me either. Yeah, it's kind of interesting though. I wonder if uh, so. I do think there's a difference here. Uh, Debs is is definitely more enthusiastic uh, than Haggerty about kind of drawing on religious language or or bringing people creating a line let's say from religious commitments to political commitments but Haggerty does do a little bit of that himself like um there's a pamphlet that Haggerty wrote called economic discontent and its remedy and uh in it he like draws some pretty clear um analogies between like Christ's suffering and the suffering of the working class and stuff like that which is like a very catholic way of getting into it it's like once you're into the passion of Jesus then you kind of see the the crucifixion of the working class um and in that sense like Haggerty again I wonder if it's kind of a rhetorical issue like sometimes it's worth kind of making these things separate and then other times it's worth kind of messing it up um but anyway all that to say uh Haggerty's a weird guy he's got a lot of weird things going on um and he might be a little more complex than this but uh no doubt there's a difference in in terms of enthusiasm yeah, there also might be like, OK, so there's also a part in this book, particularly where um, it mentions um, like a Christian socialist organization at the time in the early 1900s. I don't really know what it was. 
but um, Haggerty was not a fan of these folks, the Christian socialists. And he was like, even like railed against them a lot of times. Right. And it could be the case too, that like Christian socialism just sucked, (laughs) you know, like uh, I I don't know. Why would you want to be in an organization of Christian socialists when you could just be in the socialist party or or whatever, or in the IWW, you know, (laughs) like, I don't know why make a, why make a particular organization for yourself that isn't going to really, I don't know, do those same things. Maybe Christian socialism is bad. <laughs> yeah, like uh, the Christian socialists. So some of them were quite radical. They were kind of a, a social gospel group. Um, Debs appeals to them really directly quite a bit. And then, of course, Norman Thomas will end up leading the Socialist Party, who was a pastor himself. Um, but uh, their Christian socialism is not a Marxist tradition. Uh, Haggerty was a Marxist. So I think that there's part of that going on. Like Haggerty thinks that you should be a scientific socialist. The Christian socialists are not necessarily interested in that piece. Um, you get that. You see that all over the U.S. and Canada, the big disagreements between the early communist movement and the Christian socialist movement uh, is usually based on, you know, starting points and analysis and that sort of thing. So it's weird to say, but like because Haggerty was uh, a Marxist, um, his own kind of version of Christian socialism is like, yeah, you should just be a Marxist. <laughs> Um, rather than a a specific kind of identitarian like Christian socialist, if you want to put it that way. It's probably not a good word to use. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, it it could maybe be too like Haggerty feels pressured to be harsher on on the people that he's closer to, you know, to make that distinction clear. Whereas Debs, who's a a skilled politician, um, is trying to to rope in one more constituency. But yeah, who could say? Not me. (laughs) A a non-expert. Yeah, well, we've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of Haggerty apologetics right now, and that's fine. Maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what's interesting is that in the end, Haggerty's approach is kind of the one that wins out um, in the IWW. I mean, I mean, more. I guess maybe not exactly. Maybe it's more of a synthesis of the two. But you know, the IWW never takes on like any strong sort of Christian identity, or even like you know, it, they're not like the IWW is not out there appealing to like the Christian socialist organizations or whatever. Um, but instead they like kind of take it and play with it in more interesting ways. I think, um, uh, the best way to maybe emphasize that is, um, uh, two different things. One, like the, the little red song book, the, the labor songs that the, the IWW would sing, but also the way they would write about Jesus. But, um, so maybe we talk about a few things. Um, Dean, do you want to talk about the, the hymns, the wobbly hymns? Yeah, let's start there. So there's a great chapter. I think this is actually, uh, one of the best contributions of this whole book um the chapter is called wobbly hymnody which is so great um and the whole thing is just about reading wobbly songs as like working class hymns and trying to sort out what is kind of uh well like what matt said earlier with utah phillips what what is the kind of uh taking christian hymns because they're pretty and making the words true and then what is maybe like a an even more sort of direct um influence as a kind of genealogy of like Christian hymns to working hymns. Um, it's a really neat book or really neat chapter in the book that uh, draws from all kinds of, of cool scholarship to draw out this like weird musicology of both uh, Protestantism and um, radical workerism. But anyway, uh, this is a, a cool way that Winters sets it up. He says, Indeed, one cannot ignore the striking parallel between the Wobblies' use of music and that of American Protestantism. The genre of hymnody, especially in those gospel songs that were popularized in the 1870s through the efforts of Dwight L. Moody, the American evangelist, and his musical associate, Ira D. Sankey, provided the Wobblies with a good portion of its arsenal of parody to use against the the pie-in-the-sky attitudes of organized religion. 
They rated the hymn book of Moody and Sankey revivalism to arrive at such popular wobbly hymns as Hold the Fort and There is Power in a Union. The Little Red Songbook, in which these and many other wobbly parodies and songs appeared, was what the hymn book and the discipline of the Methodist Church had been to the frontier preachers, the sum and touchstone of faith, the pearl of revelation, the coal of fire touching their lips with eloquence. Uh, and one last paragraph here. The IWW borrowed from American Protestantism not only the tunes of many of its hymns, but also the actual form of hymn singing, camp meetings, and revivalism, particularly in the western part of the country. Before looking at specific songs of the Wobblies and examining their relationship to American hymnody, it may be useful to assess briefly how American Protestantism used gospel songs and folk hymns in its attempt to win souls, especially those of the disinherited to the flock. And uh, Winters goes on to do exactly that, but I want to flag that as uh, an attempt that he makes anyway to sort of draw these two things together. Like, there's definitely parody going on there, um, but there's also, like, appropriation might be the best word for it, uh, pulling on on board um, the strategy that really obviously worked in revivals and uh, trying to repurpose it or do a detournement of it uh, for the working class. Yeah, appropriation, detournement is a good good reference there, maybe. Um, It's also, I mean, I just, uh, kind of reading this again, it's a real big... um, medium is the message kind of moment too, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, it's like uh, the, the sort of the way to address the masses at the time is, is definitely that, that Dwight, Dwight Moody revivalism, um, you know, camp meetings and tent preaching and that whole kind of thing. Right. So then, you know, they take that exact same medium and they use it to address the masses. And I don't know, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's like an interesting tactic, but it's interesting how far they go with it, I guess. You know, you could just have a big meeting, right? But it's like, no, we actually have to have songs, too. Um, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe he um, Winter makes the, the point a little bit clearer a little bit later. He says it's clear that the IWW and its use of Protestant hymn was attempting, often successfully, to reveal the plight of the working class to middle-class America. It was also an attempt to tap the energy of moody revivalism to win rootless, disinherited workers, particularly Western workers, to the cause of revolutionary industrial unionism, right? It was like, um, you know, it's a a method of propaganda that they're ripping right from Christianity in the most interesting way and the most, like, artful way, too. There's also... I love everything about this chapter, but one thing I really really like is... um, uh, there's all this discussion about soapboxers and like, you know, getting up like um, uh, this kind of ex- explains how the IWW is really caught up in like free speech battles during the time, too, which is a whole nother mm-hmm. thing. But anyways, there would be soapboxers that they, that they would, you know, be talking like preaching the IWW gospel or, or whatever. And, you know, they'd be singing hymns and stuff and uh, a really um, cool tableau of like images and uh stories about the iww during this time yeah yeah it's a lot of fun i think it's a really fun chapter because you do get kind of a a window into the life of uh what it would be like to be a wobbly and i think that that helps him out anyway trying to talk about this sort of religious dimension um there is a you know whatever religion is it's a word that we made up to name all kinds of things that probably shouldn't be named religion but anyway um whatever else religion is it does seem to function in these kinds of ways such that at least you could kind of understand uh where winters is coming from um there are all kinds of really cool examples in the chapter of uh, the Wobblies appropriating particular hymns. He like puts a few side by side so you can 
see how they they go together or whatever. Um, but one of uh, the best ones I think is actually it's often called the Lumberjack's Prayer, um, and there's a cool rendition of it uh, by uh, Utah Phillips. So why don't we play a little bit of that just so people can get an idea of it? And I think you can really see the religious undertones here, or the the playfulness and the seriousness at the same time. I pray, dear Lord, for Jesus' sake, give us this day our T-bone steak. Hallowed be thy holy name, but don't forget to send the same. Oh, hear my humble cry, O Lord, and send us down some decent board, brown gravy and some German fried, with sliced tomatoes on the side. Observe me on my bended legs, I'm asking you for ham and eggs, and if thou havest custard pies, I'd like, dear Lord, the largest size. <laughs> oh, hear my cry, almighty host. I quite forgot the quail on toast. And let your kindly heart be stirred and stuff some oysters in that bird. <laughs> dear Lord, we know your holy wish. On Friday we must have a fish. Our flesh is weak and spirit stale. You better make that fish a whale. <laughs> Oh, hear me, Lord, remove these dogs, these sausages of powdered logs, your bull beef hash and bearded sprouts. Take them to hell or thereabouts. With alum bread and pressed beef butts, dear Lord, you damn near root my gut. Your whitewashed milk and oleorine, I wish to Christ I'd never seen. Oh, hear me, Lord, I'm praying still, but if you won't, our union will. Put pork chops on the bill of fare and starve no workers anywhere. Amen. Yep, that's a good one. Utah Phillips always delivers with the with the good IWW songs. Man, um, whenever I think about Utah Phillips, I mean the Lumberjack's Prayer is kind of like one that is always sticking in my brain um, because of the the tune particularly. But um, another song is uh, the IWW song, Dump the Bosses Off Your Back. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's to, the, it's to the tune of What a Friend We Have in Jesus, which uh, <laughs> growing up in the Nazarene Church is a song that we sang, I guess, quite a bit for whatever reason. A- anyways, that song, like uh, hearing it now, I can't think of even like what the actual words are to it. I just can only <laughs> think of, you know, dump, your, dump the bosses off your back, which is probably for the best. It's probably the best that way. Um I yeah. think that's the the only really good way to do that song. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, we should say, too, uh, I think we've talked about Utah Phillips in the past, but for people who don't know, um, he was a really interesting guy, a kind of living archive of uh, worker songs. He had, a, well, he kind of like discovered the hobo lifestyle after Vietnam and tried to put his life back together and um, in the process came across the Catholic worker and was a, a big admirer of Dorothy Day and Ammon Hennessy, although he wasn't... Um, a, a religious person himself, um, but uh, a fascinating character. Like um, he's a storyteller in addition to being a, a, a sort of folk song repository. Um, and you can hear a lot of neat stories about like the Catholic worker and other workers movements. If you listen to albums of him recorded, they're like all over YouTube and on Spotify and stuff. But anyway, uh, a neat character, Utah Phillips, if you're interested in uh, Christianity and the left. Yeah, for sure. And actually, sorry, just, I don't want to have to be a note at all, but we are a podcast. Um, he was he did the hobo lifestyle after the <laughs> Korean War, not the Vietnam War. He was older than that. Mm-hmm. Right. Sorry. sorry. That's right. Just I'm always over here fact checking you, you know? Yeah, somebody's got it. I'm just a journalist. We need those fact checkers, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, so you got all these good union songs uh, that are yeah using the you know using the tunes of hymns, uh, but also you have this like <laughs> the uh, I think Winter says that there's like this the IWW has like a compulsion to publish newspapers, which is a really funny way to put it. But yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's <laughs> it's right. They the the IWW has so many publications and so many newspapers. It's hard to keep track of them all. Um, but the, uh, this book focuses on the industrial worker a lot, um, which is one of the publications uh, where a lot of the stuff comes from. Um, there's another one. I can't remember the name of it. The Industrial Worker Bolton or, or something. One was on the West Coast. One was in Chicago. It doesn't matter. Um, but <laughs> there is these two different publications. You can find the archive of them, um, at least a, a lot of them, on um, the IWW website. Like they're, uh, They have them digitized there. Uh, and if you can't, you can find them from 1917 onward, but if you want anything older than that, you have to look on Marxist.org. So thank you, Marxist.org, again, <laughs> for your tireless work at archiving all of the good stuff. So it's all there. Um, yeah, I actually, I went back and like, um, I, I found some of the clips that, uh, they, they put in this book and I, I found them in the original, um, like digitized newspaper and they are very fun. The newspaper um holy crap it just says like sort of a from a design perspective impossible to read i have no idea how anyone read it <laughs> it's like extremely <laughs> small type and like just columns and columns of words with with almost no break um i'm sure there's something <laughs> out there written about the design of those newspapers but they're so wild like like no spacing they're trying to fit every single word they possibly could in that page it was amazing um it is hilarious to think of like the iww uh, so we, we didn't really explain much of what the iww is which was probably oh. maybe we're too late <laughs> but just, just um, assume everyone knew yeah i guess uh well okay the iww just to kind of give you a bigger idea you know it's the one big union it's a um a big union that is trying to unionize everybody under one big union that could uh, basically unite certain um, sections of the working class uh, together. So like if, um, you know, if the the transit people are on strike, then whatever the like people in the garment industry will also go on strike. You know, they can they could organize general strikes, uh, strategic strikes, etc. They're um, syndicalists. Primarily, they end up being especially uh, anyway, big union types. Uh, but what's great about the IWW is uh, that meant that membership was really kind of fluid, like a lot of people People kind of came in and out of it, like based on circumstance, uh, which is very funny. Uh, and so they had all kinds of itinerant and migrant workers as well. And imagining like a bunch of people hopping a train, like a ton of hobos hopping a train with like a poorly designed IWW uh, newspaper and like squinting to read it by like the bonfire is very funny. And I love that. I love it, too. It's good. Good aesthetic. Um, well, in all these newspapers, they wrote a lot of articles about all kinds of things, um, mostly labor struggles. But uh, something that came up uh, quite a bit in the IWW newspapers was Jesus. <laughs> so <laughs> the fourth chapter of Winter's book is um, called The Religious Question in the Wobbly Press. And it is a really interesting chapter that's trying to just like um, draw out a few different theses. So um, one of the theses that's pretty easy to spell is that it's wrong to say the IWW was militantly atheist. Um, instead, they viewed religion as like a private matter, something disconnected from their politics, like Haggerty, um, without like any specific commentary on the economic arrangement of society. So that's one of the theses. Um, and uh, it's 
kind of like it's argued pretty interestingly like you know if they uh if if the iww was militantly atheist and they just hated religion like they probably wouldn't talk about jesus as much as they did so that's something um Mm -hmm. the second thesis though is a lot more interesting it's that jesus is important in the iww press and appears as like a, a hobo a rebel a socialist a proletarian carpenter who you know dies for the working class um, this is kind of like what Debs was saying, um, but a little bit different still. Um, and he's contrasted with other popular Christian figures of that day, like Billy Sunday, who was like a really prolific sort of preacher at this time that did the whole, you know, camp revival sort of thing. Uh, but also other targets were uh, the Salvation Army or the Starvation Army, if you're a wobbly, <laughs> and the YMCA, which is which is a weird one if you don't know about the YMCA at the time, um, but it had a lot to do with militarism. Um, so it's not like they want to take your gym away. They're not trying to take your gym. I promise. <laughs> um, after that, the chapter goes on to talk about, uh, the way the IWW press contrasts pure Christianity with U S militarism, which is, I think really helpful and cool. Um, the wobbly editor, uh, Walker C Smith wrote that war is hell. Don't go to, don't go to hell in order to give the capitalists a bigger slice of heaven. Uh, and then Winters goes on to say that uh, that the quote, like the the phrase or slogan, "Christians at War," became an anthem of the anti-militarist rebels of the IWW. So that's pretty neat as well. And then finally, uh, the the last thesis in this chapter is that like the IWW sometimes uses religious language to refer to itself, calling itself a religion of the working class and playing around with the U.S. guarantees for the freedom of religion. Um, but like, I, again, I guess it's I, to me, it always comes off like it's not in earnest that they're doing that. It's kind of like a it's kind of just like a, a big sort of play or joke or something. You know, they're they're trying to yeah. pull one over on on the, the capitalist class and <laughs> um, they do a good job. So it, it's like this really the, the IWW press is interesting because it's it, it's not militantly atheist. I mean, like, how could you have a mass of like working class people that were militantly atheist? I think that'd be a pretty amazing thing. I mean, like, you know, working class people, all kinds of people are religious. How would you do that? But anyways, um, you have all these like people who are using the language of Jesus, the figure of Jesus in a particular way. Um, you know, they're, they're using Christianity to critique, you know, U S militarism. They're using religion as sort of like a play. I don't know. It just all seems very playful and very fun and pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know. I like it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. Um, I think this is definitely the strongest chapter of the book, just because it, full, it pulls out so many intriguing things. Um, and the theses are all good. Like, they're all worth kind of exploring, uh, with the exception, I think you're right, that the the last one is kind of hard to sort out. Although Winters seems to attend to that. Like, he's, he leaves a little room, I think, for saying, yeah, they're, they're doing this as parody, but um, what does it reveal about religion? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it reveal about the kind of consciousness within the IWW? Because um, there is a kind of, like, strange blurry line there like he yeah they're calling the bluff of like you know the u.s constitution uh being like well this is our religion it's the religion of the working class um but as we'll see in some of these press quotes they also do kind of think that like there is a working class religion (laughs) and uh iww is trying to to get it going all right so why don't we uh pull out some of the press quotes that winters pulls out himself so here's one he says in a 1916 article entitled our attitude toward religion Albert B. Prashner, great name, expresses an opinion that seems to reflect the attitude of the IWW as a whole. So here's the quote. It makes no difference to the wage worker whether the employer is Jew, Christian, or atheist. 
The same thing applies to the worker alongside of us on the job. When the worker becomes conscious of the class to which he belongs and that his interests are identical with his class, his particular creed cannot hold him back any more than driftwood can hold back the tide. I would rather have a fighting Irish Catholic by my side in a strike than any spineless intellectual dilettante. Um, great dig against the uh, the old Richard Dawkinses of the world there already back in uh, 1916. Yeah, um, no rather have an, an Irish Catholic than a, a annoying um, scientist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I like that a lot. Um, in in that sense, though, it is like uh, it seems pretty on par with like James Connolly or even Lennon, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Like those those don't make a difference. Um, you know, uh, your employer is going to oppress you either way, and uh, the the worker who is beside you, you hope will fight alongside you. Um, it is true. Uh, if your boss is a Christian, though, it can be pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I've had a few. Yeah, if you if you work at a Christian bookstore, it's gonna look something a little different. <laughs> that oppression is gonna be a little bit more uncomfortable than it would otherwise. Man, I have to say, as an aside, there is nothing worse than uh, opening your workday with prayer. Oh, it's it's terrible. I hate it. Um, yep. I mean, there's a, and there's also like a particular type of, uh, you know, you got You're doing it for the mission <laughs> right. that uh, makes you feel bad when you want, uh, when you're going to ask for more yeah. money. So. Um, so Christians shouldn't be bosses is something I'm comfortable. Saying. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there we go. <laughs> All right. Here's another quote that I like a lot. Uh, it's particularly apt for this, uh, this terrible moment that we're living in right now. I probably, it's probably apt for every terrible moment <laughs> we live in, but here it is. Uh, so uh, Winters contextualizes the quote saying in opposition to militarism and patriotism, the IWW strikes the very root of American civil religion. And then here's a quote. The priests of Moloch no longer sacrifice babies to the image of their gods. How much nobler sacrifice our brothers and sons and husbands to the god of dollars. And the priests, what of them? They are upholding the justice of the legalized murder. They are still possessing the minds of the children with false ideas of patriotism. But the sublime thing about the sky pilots is the matchless hypocrisy. <laughs> uh, this is pretty good. Um it is yeah i mean using the using the prophets and elijah and um the priests of baal or or whoever the priests of moloch i don't know um in this really like i think helpful way that is prophetic and um you know religious in the right sense but also in the sort of critical sense and i like that a lot also how fun is it sky pilots is the funnest yeah. like the most fun derogatory term for christian people i like that a lot it's really good um it is very good i like it uh in the uh the beginning of that article also winters points out that um the wobbly writer discusses ironically how things have changed from the days when elijah is said to have killed the priests of baal who performed human sacrifices with their own hands <laughs> uh pretty spooky there wobbly uh but yeah that's fun um yeah it is fun <laughs> there's a another interesting piece here um again with the militarism stuff that i think is pretty fascinating and goes back to to the um ideas of kind of how the wobblies challenge christianity in, in a cool way so uh winter says in condemning the religious press and preachers who sought to make the european war appear as a christian crusade this is the first world war the editor of uh, one of these papers writes in 1917 quote we don't believe it if he is a god of peace, love, and brotherhood, and he's anywhere on the earth, it must be in China or the other heathen nations. Even the devil, bad as his reputation is, would not be guilty of the crimes with which they are trying to saddle God. 
no god or devil would ever fall so low as to fight for the American munition trusts. And I love that. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. Not God or the devil. <laughs> I love too that uh if there's a god of peace, uh, etc., like he's definitely not in a Christian country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Um oof. Uh, Winters has a really neat conclusion to this chapter where he says uh, the IWW's attitude toward Christianity then, as revealed in its press, is too complex to dismiss simply as unbridled hostility. Rather than tossing Christianity on the ash heap of history, the IWW declares in the words of Walker P. Smith that the working class and the employing class have no God in common, which is a riff, by the way, on the uh, IWW preamble. And if the workers feel the need for a God, it should be one of the working class by the working class for the working class. Within this context, the IWW rejects bourgeois civil religion as idolatry and Billy Sunday revivalism as hypocrisy while celebrating the heroism of Jesus, who, like martyr Joe Hill, lived like a rebel and died like a rebel. Um, I think it's a really great conclusion, and uh, it, it ties together a lot. What I especially like is that uh, that line about how the working class and the employing class have no God in common. Um, that's a riff, as I said, off of Haggerty's line in the preamble that the uh, working class and the employing class have nothing in common. Um, so it's neat to extend that to religion um, to kind of say there's a real class divide within religion itself. Um, and it's a, a radical statement to say that they have no God in common. Uh, what the theological implications for that are, don't ask me because I'm not a theologian, but there are some pretty good political ones, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's also just a catchy phrase. It's a good sticker. I'd put it on my computer. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's cool. It's a good conclusion. Um, yeah, the theological ramifications. I'm sure there are some, and I am not interested. <laughs> but um, I think it it proves Winter's point, though, that the IWW has this like really interesting. Yeah, I, I think detournement might be like the best way to put it. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it more, like uh, detournement is a French term. Who cares? But basically, it means like it's hijacking something to do something else with it. And I think that's exactly what they're doing with Christianity. I mean, they are hijacking it for sure, right? Um, it's not it's not sort of doing the thing that Christianity is doing with the other folks, the the Billy Sundays, the sky pilots of the world, if you will. <laughs> uh, but it's hijacking it to do something else. And um, I think what's interesting when people do those types of projects um, is like how much of the design of the original thing or not the original thing, but how much of the design of the hijack thing, you know, like what, what affordances does it give you? Mm -hmm. And what the IWW shows us that there are quite a few affordances to Christianity uh, when it comes to radical politics, even if you, you know, want to want to make them two separate things like Haggerty or something. Um, there are quite a few things that the character of Jesus and the gospels and the prophets afford you to, uh, to do and to say and to think. Yeah, that's right. And um, I appreciate, too, that uh, there's like a lot to think about with respect to how much of the revival spirit um, makes possible uh, IWW strategies or, or is a, you know, provides kind of simple affordances that you can you can take up in, in that uh, working class organizing strategy and how much of it is also kind of formatively um, influencing the IWW. Uh, those are questions that I think are really interesting to kind of keep on reading the history of groups like IWW. And it's not just them, like um, in Hammer and Ho, for instance, which is a really neat book by Robin D.G. Kelly about organizing black communists in Alabama. Uh, there's a lot of really kind of similar stuff there where like um, the Communist Party USA in organizing um, black sharecroppers and farmers, uh, they ended up um, 
finding ways of uh, translating like spirituals and hymns into communist spirituals and hymns. And uh, in some ways, there's a kind of cynical thing going on, right? Like cynical in the sense of like, okay, maybe the communists didn't really believe that this is an important song or something. Um, But in another way, it's also just an attempt to connect with something that is authentically meaningful to a particular community. And what's fascinating is, uh, as Kelly uh, draws out in the text, um, the actual farmers who end up organizing, um, they themselves kind of create these intriguing hodgepodges of like politics and a religion. So regardless of what the Communist Party maybe does or doesn't want to have happen, um, these things take on sort of a life of their own. And I think they do in the IWW. You can do the same in, in all kinds of other places, you know, figuring out like what are the kind of religious seeds that sprout in bizarre ways in movements like the Young Lords or the Black Panthers or whatever. Um, I don't know. That's always like my favorite thing as a a person who reads history, but is not a historian, (laughs) like trying to find those weird moments that uh, connect with something that you think is, is cool or neat. Yeah, totally. Um, I think also it's so cool too, that it comes from outside of Christianity in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I, I always think that's really interesting. Like, I mean, same thing with Young Lords, right? They like they're appropriating Christianity and doing something interesting with it um, that it itself is not capable of doing without right. like the outside force. And the IWW, like the same thing, right? Like um, Christians, you, you know, like evangelical Christians were are are not <laughs> capable of this <laughs> without an outside force. And I don't know, like I don't know what to really say of that, other like other than like isn't that an interesting historical thing that happens where like an outside force will co opt you know, a really particular group to do something with it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think like, is there anything else like that that's happening right now? And my impulse is no, but, <laughs> but wouldn't it be cool if there was, well, we just talked on the the Patreon podcast for people who aren't listening. We have a, a, a short current events kind of thing that we've been doing on the Patreon. And we did talk briefly about uh, Maduro getting really invested into Christianity all of a sudden in Venezuela. Um, I wonder if there's something like that that's similar, you know, like trying to the Bolivarian revolution needs a a way to connect with religious constituents. And um, especially in the middle of a pandemic, like uh, ever, you know, there's no atheist in a foxhole, as the old saying goes. So uh, who knows? Like there's something about that that's still happening. But yeah, whether or not it's happening in the US or or Canada, who could say? Yeah, sounds good. Well, um, maybe we can conclude this by... So there's more in the book. There's a couple chapters we didn't touch on, but maybe we could uh, just pull a few lessons, I guess, from the IWW. Um, Matt, do you have any anything in this text that you just feel like uh, this is what you want to take away from the IWW as a Christian person yourself? Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, okay. I, I like so many... Of the, some of the stories in here are so cool, but they're so, like, rooted in, like, 1900s. It's hard to, like... <laughs> take away a, a discernible point right like have a big tent meeting get a soapbox <laughs> on the street and yell at people Nah, probably not um what i do like though is i don't know exploring those affordances of jesus as this different type of character you know that is i think true to the bible in a lot of ways but um but also like not usually the way we think about jesus thinking about jesus as like itinerant worker hobo proletarian i think is very cool and um i appreciate the iww for like giving us the the words to describe those things i think that's really fun and um and helpful yeah um i would say the same thing that the iww allows i think people to or at least allows me to re-encounter christianity in a different kind of way and especially the person of jesus um which is neat. Like, 
who knew that all you need is a bunch of uh, organized hobos to help you figure out how Christianity should look. Um, but surprise, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I, I think I, I want to especially dig up a bunch more of these newspapers on Marxist.org uh, and elsewhere and try to figure out how is the IWW actually helping people um, encounter uh, a god that is for the working class, um, by the working class, of the working class, etc. Which uh, I think you could make the case that Jesus at least on a certain reading is exactly that right a working class god um the incarnation of god into a working class person etc um there's maybe some problems with with doing that but uh i'm not interested in them <laughs> i like i like the good <laughs> stuff and uh yeah i think it's a neat way to uh reimagine the tradition of course there are problems but you could just ignore them <laughs> unless uh unless you have good politics and you think there are problems you can tell us but if you have bad politics nah don't tell us not interested. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to our podcast on Patreon. Um, that's a nice thing for you to do. We appreciate it. You can um, get cool things like a uh, a new weekly current events podcast that Dean and I are doing. Um, so subscribe to us there. Get another podcast in your life. You know you want it. You know you need it. Probably not, but you could have it if you wanted to. Um, cool. Uh, the intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Usually our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon, but this week uh, our outro music is by Utah Phillips. Uh, it's called Dump the Bosses Off Your Back. So do what the song tells you and uh, join join uh, the one big union, another union, start a union. I don't care, but do one of those things for sure. Are you cold, forlorn, and hungry? Are there lots of things you lack? Is your life made up of misery? Then dump the bosses off your back. Are your clothes all torn and tattered? Are you living in a shack? Would you have your troubles scattered? Then dump the bosses off your back. Are you almost split asunder? Loaded like a long-eared jack. Boob, why don't you buck like thunder and dump the bosses off your back? All the agonies you suffer, you could end with one good whack. Stiffen up, you ornery duffer, and dump the bosses off your back. Bah, bah, bah.